Hi, I'm Lily. I'm an alcoholic. Um, uh, thank you for asking me, Laura and Dean. Thank you. And it's an honor to be here. Um, I just want to say just to get um, the business part of it over. I have a sponsor and I do about, I work full time and then I, I do two in-persons meetings a week and I do about 30 Zoom meetings a week just because um, I've never experienced anything like AA as it's been since I've been here for a year. Um, the reason, I mean, I... I never had an I never had a problem with alcohol. I've had sobriety because I was um, court ordered to go to to a program, which I did very well in. Um, and I would have had a long, I would have had 2008 is when I stopped using anything, um, and then I picked up alcohol about three years ago because. Um, I didn't, nothing, no other substance came into my life. I had, you know, and it's always over at, at a relationship. Uh, even I had a relationship that was um, really unhealthy, but, you know, he was in and out of um, the justice system. And finally, and, and finally I had enough, you know, I, I was always there for him. But somewhere down the line, I don't know what triggered it or whatever, but I just started feeling bad. And um, I don't know how liquor got into my brain, but my dad died of cirrhosis. And so it, it I mean, it started off very slowly. Um, and I asked my sponsor, why did it come on and do so much damage in such a short amount of time? Um, so what I'm going to, I want to back up to say that I wasn't supposed to, um, my primary care doctor said, he was really surprised that I was going to see if I made it to see 2023 because in the few short years that I started drinking, um, so it, something triggered inside me that I could not stop. I could, I couldn't stop whatsoever. Um, I thought I could control it. You know, I thought I could, um, cause I work in the medical field and I'd always check you know, when I feel a little off, I'd look in the mirror, I'd see a little yellow, but not that bad. You know, I was able to, I thought, I thought I could control it because I knew what to do because I was also working as a um, counselor in a rehab facility that I had to leave because I started using drinking. And, um, and so, uh, I went into, um, I went into liver failure. I didn't know it. I just started feeling bad at work. And I, I went to the hospital and um, they uh, they kept me and they just said that I had a UTI or something. You know, to make a long story short, there's a story in the book that um, talks about a woman that gets a liver transplant. And she talks about how nobody told her that she had cirrhosis. And that was kind of like my deal. I didn't know. I had cirrhosis till, gosh, like I was in the hospital for a month. Nobody told me, and I didn't ask, right? Because I'm not, I don't want, I'm not an alcoholic, right? Because I've only been drinking, you know, a few years, and I don't drink that much, and I've never bought a handle. But the problem was I could not stop, and even when 
I was, I had to go through physical therapy and everything. And, and then when I got home, I had to go back to the hospital and I asked the doctor, I go, you know, do I have cirrhosis? And he's like, yeah. He goes, nobody ever told you. I said, no. And, you know, there was plenty of times for me to have stopped, but I just thought, well, I'm okay. I'm not yellow. I don't have the shakes, you know, but, but towards the end I did. It's like, I remember the, it's a, the, on page 30, I memorized it. Page 30, um, the third paragraph talks about incomprehensible demoralization. And, and that's the first time I've heard of that. And it all makes sense because I let myself settle for the most humiliating things to be treated by people in such a demoralization um, that I still can't get it out of my head how cruel I allowed people to be to me um, just to have somebody around. Uh, so now I have, I have, um, when I got back out of that liver failure, my, um, I have a blood specialist, a liver specialist and a PCP and my PCP is so great. He goes, you know, Lily, he goes, I don't know what it's going to take, but you can't have one drop of alcohol. And I'm like, oh, right. I'm thinking to myself, what's one drop going to do? So, you know, I got a clearance, like four months went down the road. I, my color started getting better and I got cleared through my liver doctor and I, and I accident, I didn't accidentally, I read the chart note from the evaluation, you know, the consult. And so guess what? I thought, well, maybe now I know that I can recover if I just stop for a few months. So I started, well, I'll just have like a little bit because I, like I told you, I could not stop drinking at all. I had to have it when I got up. I had to have it throughout the day. I had to have it when I got home. And I just couldn't believe it that this thing, this entity, I think alcohol is an entity because I beat drugs. I beat the criminal life that I had, but I couldn't beat this liquid that is, it takes a form of, of, of a living organism to me because it just, it's, it's, I can't explain it, but thank God I have found these rooms and my sponsor that I had from before when I was in the program, she never stopped being my sponsor. And if it wasn't for, you know, I asked her, well, how come I don't have the obsession anymore? It just went away. Now, mind you, two other liver failures came down the road because I went to detox three times in three months and I went to a program and I got dropped off and I couldn't, I was, couldn't wait for the person to leave. And then I was in my car straight to the liquor store drinking again. And then, and then I, and then the last time was October 27th, 2022. I went to MPI and I was sitting, uh, I went up to the wheel. I went into a wheelchair upstairs drinking a bottle of vodka. And I didn't know what I was going to do because I was going to die. There was no way I couldn't stop for nothing. I mean, I have kids. I swear on my kids. If I can mend my relationship and I don't drink, that didn't matter. I have a house up in Humboldt that um, is on the ocean that I was going to retire. So what if I lose it? Just drink. I just said, you know what? I'm totally defeated. 
forget surrendering. I'm defeated. And, you know, um, I just thank God. And I guess it's my subconscious maybe tried to get it through to me because maybe I'm supposed to live for a reason. You know, I still have problems. I, um, it's been a year I had my ultrasound, my yearly ultrasound and my blood work and everything's the same, but my blood's still bad. But, um, I, but the thing is, and I, am I at three, at three minute warning? Yeah. Okay. Um, what I want to say is that it may sound weird to you guys, but I, I'm happy. I'm sick, but I'm happy. When I wasn't sick, I was so unhappy and I didn't know love and I didn't know friendship and I didn't know camaraderie and I didn't know about demoral, incomprehensible demoralization. Never again, never again. And I just, and I just can't get enough of meetings. I know I don't have to be in this house with my childhood home by myself anymore. I have you. I have, you know, I secretary two meetings and I mean, I just, I want to live. I just really want to live. And I just, if I can tell you guys that much, that's why this birthday means more than my regular birthday. I don't, I, I don't know if I can convey it as, as special as it is. I just don't want this day to end. And I know if with the late show, I get to celebrate for a week, right? <laughs> I think so. So thank you all for being part of my recovery, for being part of my birthday, and and for me being excited that it was my birthday. So thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, Laura, I thank you so much for calling and inviting me to be a part of the show here, part of the meeting. Um, this is my second time, actually, I've spoken before people that I've never met before. And uh, as at the behest of my sponsor, and <clears throat> he wanted me to make sure, not this time, but the last time I came and spoke before people, uh, there's a story that I shared with him on my fourth step, on my fifth step, that he's surprised that I didn't share at the last time that he invited me to speak at his home group. But I think that when he told me that, I'd forgotten to share it. It made sense to me because uh, I'm going to share it with you guys. It's a little bit about me as an alcoholic before I ever took a drink. And uh, so when I was a kid, I went to a friend of mine's house. Uh, well, my mom had took me to a friend of my, hers house. And they had a secret garden. And in that secret garden, uh the fella took me and showed me this magical garden. It was amazing. And we were sitting there and we were talking and he was telling me about his grandson and how I reminded him of his grandson and how his grandson worked on a farm and drove tractors and drove the farm truck getting hay. And I was telling him a story about how I was getting hay with uh, some family friends that lived out down the road from me. And I got it in my head that I wanted to learn how to drive. Now, knuckleheaded childhood is one thing. You know, we get in a lot of trouble, we're stubborn, obstinate, and uh, we want what we want when we want it because we're kids and that's just how we are. But uh, I was a child and uh, I wanted to learn how to drive and I kept 
pastor and my parents. I was probably eight years old when I got in my head, I wanted to learn how to drive. And I kept pastoring my mom and dad to teach me how to drive. And every now and then my mom would let me drive from the passenger side of the car. And that was a lot of fun, but I really wanted to drive. I wanted to be in the driver's seat. I wanted that control. I don't know why I just had to learn how to drive. And one day, one week, my mom and dad were off at a wedding, wedding recital, wedding, wedding preparations. And so uh, they were going to the dinners and they were going to the rehearsals and so on and so forth. And so while they were gone, I'm 12 years old now. And I decided to take my mom's car up and down the driveway. And I'm going up and down the driveway and I'm doing all right. And I get in my head that I'm finally ready to take the show on the road. But I couldn't, I didn't really want to drive on the road. So I went ahead and took my dad's truck and took it up to the logging road. And as I was going down the logging road, uh, I mean, I took the truck up the road. It was fine. And I got off the logging road. And as I was going down the logging road, it was an old logging road. And the, the road started getting narrower. And I'm a 12-year-old. I've never driven before. And there's a cliff on one side, and there's a scrub alders, little small alders, about that big around, on the one side. So I start hugging those alders. And, uh, you know, no big deal, running little ones over. But then they started getting bigger. And I wasn't going to get onto the road because I was afraid of taking that truck over the cliff. And so, long story short, I was hugging that road, smashing my dad's bumper in, in further and further every time I kept hitting I was smashing that bumper in farther and farther into the fender well. And uh, finally, I got to a place where I could turn around, and I did, and I took the truck back home. And I'm freaking out. I am so out of my head, freaking out, scared, thinking my, my parents are going to kill me. Literally, I was afraid. I was, my dad did not withhold the rod, if that makes sense. My dad beat us when we were got out of line. And... In fact, I don't think I was, I don't think I went to bed without a spanking for the first 10 years of my life. And uh, so I was pretty nervous and pretty scared that I'm going to get big, big trouble. And so I called my friend and he says, you need to talk to mom. You need to talk to my mom. And so I'm like, no, no, I don't want to talk to your mom, but he, let me talk to his mom. So I talked to his mom. And uh, she says, don't worry about it. Your mom and dad are going to be more than happy to know that you're okay. That's all that matters is that you're okay. And you're going to be okay. Don't worry about it. So that calmed me down a little bit. And then I hung up the phone. And I sat there and I was thinking, after about 10 minutes, you know, I wasn't practicing in the truck. I was practicing in mom's car. You know, I bet you. That won't happen if I drove mom's car. You know what? I'm going to get in mom's car and I'm going to take mom's car up and down the driveway and I'm going to get this figured out. And I go up and down the driveway a couple, four or five times. And I think, you know what? That's the problem. I was in mom's, I was in, I was practicing in mom's car. I needed to go take dad's truck. And I, and I took dad's truck. I needed to take mom's car. And so I get in my mom's, I'm in my mom's car and I take this show on the road. 
And I'm going, and as I'm on the road, I'm looking at the lines and I'm like, if I don't want people to think that there's a kid driving the car, I need to drive as fast as my mom does. And so I start getting those lines on the road, whipping by pretty quick. I don't know how fast I was going, but my mom drove like a raped ape. And so I was going as fast as a raped ape, never having driven a car before. And I come around Devil's Corner and uh, I almost made it out. And I put that car right in the ditch. I didn't think that that was alcoholism, but that's alcoholism. That's a subtle insanity that thinks next time will be different. Nothing's changed. Only next time will be different. And I don't know why I got that in my head, but that's the kind of thinking that carried me through. I still have to trouble. I still have to combat that sort of thinking. Luckily for me, there's a program for that. I was 25 years old before I quit drinking. I was 23 years old when I realized I, I needed to quit drinking, that drinking might be a problem. I was 24 years old when I had an honest desire, sincere effort to quit drinking, like begging my friends, don't offer it to me. And for some reason, at the end of the day, I would still be drinking. I was logging. That's what I was doing. I live in the Pacific Northwest, and that's one of the things that we, I was a, I was a construction, I worked a carpentry for a little while, you know, and that suited my vagabond lifestyle. I worked in a, a restaurant work for a little while, but uh, none of that stuff was ever going to build me up to be a family man or allow me the opportunity to go somewhere in life. I needed a real job that had the benefits and was going to be able to hold me, tide me over, give me a future. And so I got a job. I applied at Mayor Brothers, a logging outfit, and uh, their union, and they hired me. And I was so happy. And uh, things were working great for a while. You know, probably about a year I was working there for them guys. And then I got to, we were working on a job. Actually, it wasn't even a year. <laughs> it wasn't even six months, I think, before I realized that uh, my drinking was really a big, huge problem. Because we were working three and a half hours out of town. And so our, my my re my rest became sleeping in the crummy. It was a three and a hour, three and a half hour crummy ride to work. And it was the middle of winter, and for some reason, I would me and the me and the yarder engineer would be drinking when we got off work. We'd stop at the quick stop, and we'd get a couple tall boys, and we'd be drinking on the way home. And then I realized I can't be doing this, and I'd be begging him, "Don't offer me a drink." And he wouldn't offer me a drink. Well, actually, for a while there, he'd offer me a drink. And then I would take it. I'd cave. And then finally, I'm like, please don't. And then when he would stop offering, then I'd be like, okay, maybe I'll have a drink. Against all, I had no reservations. I had, I don't know why. I just, I, I had no resistance whatsoever. It didn't matter how bad I wanted to stop. I I was screwed. I was literally 
screwed. I, I couldn't stop. And, uh, and that went on for about another six months. And finally one night, you know, and I had lost the house that I was living in and I would moved in. Now I'm in another house and, uh, I'm laying in my bed one night and, uh, I got tears in my eyes and I'm, and I'm, I'm just, I say, God, I can't stop. I, no matter, I can't, I can't stop. And I knew I was going to get up and I was going to drink again the next day. And I knew I'm going to lose this job. And I know I'm probably going to wind up being my idea of what an alcoholic was, which was homeless, living under a bridge. I knew that's where I was going. And I was like, God, if it's your will for me to be an alcoholic, I'll do my best to be the best person I can be living under a bridge. I'll try to tell people about you under the bridge, you know, and like I did, my relationship with God was was religious. You know, I was raised in the church, but I did not have a knowledge of God that was relationship wise i it was all emotionalism just like bill talks about it was these it was weird it was not it was i went to a pentecostal church where everybody's speaking in tongues and all that sort of stuff and that that's just not me and it's never been me and i thought that i was the weird odd one out that i didn't speak in tongues or something you know uh I didn't just didn't I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy church and I didn't enjoy church people and my prayers were falling flat. And uh so like I said, I prayed the prayer to a God I didn't understand, hoping for a miracle. But I knew I told him if if I'm gonna stop, it's gonna have to be you, because I can't. I can't. I can't quit. And uh, and one day I was at work a couple, couple weeks later, and I fell down, and I got a sharp stick in the eye. It would, wouldn't stab me. It was just scratched my cornea. It was just a scratch. And uh, it was fine. I went home, and I was going to sleep it off. And, you know, just I could hurt, I burned to open my eyes. So I just closed my eyes. I went home, and I went to sleep. And when I woke up from my nap, it was just burning so bad. It was just burning fierce. And so I went down to the uh, uh, emergency room to have them take a look at it. And they gave me some stuff to numb it. They said it was just a scratch. And uh, it'll be okay. But once you do an LNI claim, they require a urinalysis before you can go back to work. And uh, marijuana is also a part of my story. And so I failed the urinalysis. And that required me to go take a drug and alcohol evaluation. And uh, I wanted some help, but I didn't want to lose my job. So I tried to tell them a little bit of how my drinking life was. And a little bit of how my smoking and my, you know, that sort of stuff was. But I didn't want to be completely honest because I didn't want to lose my job. So I told them a little bit. And... It turns out that that little bit that I told them <laughs> was enough for treatment. I mean, they put me in 21-day in-house treatment. And uh, while I was in treatment, I got a story from a fella named Larry V. 
at an AA meeting. And I don't know, I don't know who his sponsor was. I still don't know who his sponsor was this day. But his sponsor apparently was somebody important, somebody respected, because it was standing room only in this hospital cafeteria where they were having these AA meetings for the treatment center folks. Standing room only. And it was a pretty decent sized cafeteria. And his sponsor got held up in traffic. The gentleman who spoke that night, his sponsor got held up in traffic coming from Federal Way, Seattle area, to my little town. And he didn't make it. So his sponsee had to fill in for him that night. And I don't know if that was a miracle or not, because if he had had a well-prepared, polished message, it might not have reached me. But this guy who was put on the spot right there that night had to share his start, his experience, strength, and hope and just how god-awful of a person he was and what his experience was with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and then what who he was standing there before us that day. I can tell you, I was convinced that the person he described was a man that was I would not have had respect for him. And the person that was standing there that day in front of me that day was a man I admired and wanted to be like. And I was like, if the only thing that happened in the meeting in the mid in the middle was doing these 12 steps and working with a sponsor who's done those 12 steps, who's had a spiritual experience, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to, I'm going to throw myself hook, line, and sinker into this program and see what it does for me. I went through three sponsors pretty quick. <laughs> Not quick. I mean, I had two and a half years of sobriety. And uh, then the war happened, 9-11. And uh, I joined the Army. And I uh, I don't know what got into my head about it all, but I thought maybe I'm not an alcoholic. You know, it worked so well, two and a half years. I mean, sure, there was the there was the white knuckling phases where I'm doing my steps and not drinking between meetings and, uh, you know, going to meetings and not drinking in between. And, uh, you know, but I was happy and I had known peace like I'd never known peace before. I, I really felt that I was having a spiritual experience. And so I thought it was worth it to go ahead and see whether or not I was really an alcoholic. The big book talks about it. You know, try if you're not convinced, entirely convinced you're an alcoholic, have a drink. Have yourself two drinks. Stop abruptly. It's worth a case of the jitters to get a firm uh, understanding of your condition. And I was going to basic training and I was at MEPS. You know what I mean? I was, I was at the hotel for MEPS. The next day, I'm flying off to basic training. There's no getting out of it, you know? So I tried it and I stopped abruptly. I didn't even finish the drink. But I'll tell you that entire nine and a half weeks in basic training, that's all I thought about was that drink I left on the counter. And I was angry, irritable, and discontent. And I was homicidal in basic training. I did not, anybody who says they enjoyed basic training, I would say, 
you didn't go. If you enjoyed it, you didn't go. But a lot of it probably had to do with my attitude. I was very, very angry. And so the first chance I got out of basic training into AIT, first night out, I bought some alcohol for one of my friends because I was 28 years old and everybody else was barely 21, you know, just, just getting out of high school, you know, so they were barely 18. I mean, so, uh, I was passed out drunk within 45 minutes of being in the hotel. I don't know what I just, and that kicked off my drinking again. And I was drinking every chance I had until, uh, I mean, I, I, I was drinking for airborne operations during airborne school. I was drinking before formation uh, in the millet when I, I, I missed my missed movement from my promotion ceremony from when I was in the military. My first, because I was just past, I was just drunk, hungover, I should say. Anyway, finally, a circumstance came up where I missed another movement and uh, the first sergeant wanted to give me a year, uh, wanted to chapter me out of the army. He says, uh, prepare chapter proceedings, take him down to the hospital, get blood alcohol drawn on him because I don't need men like him in my army. And uh, that was a wake up call. Like I said, I, I got in trouble before because of my drinking and my squad leader and my platoon sergeant had me standing on the carpet in front of them multiple times. We're saying, we're not saying you got to quit. We're just saying you got to cut back. And I'm like, you don't understand. I don't think I can cut back. It's it's a real deal for me. He says, well, I don't know what to tell you. You better cut back or you're going to be, you're going to be hurting. So uh, anyway, they they made me take the army substance abuse class and uh, I had to pass that. And I guess my blood alcohol test came back negative. I'm not sure because I never heard much of it. They finally dropped it. And uh, I started going to AA meetings and doing correspondence courses and just passing my time with all that other stuff. And, but I didn't have that happy pink cloud thing that people talk about in the meetings. I didn't, I wasn't happy anymore. I wasn't joyous. I wasn't free. And so I figured I'd get a higher power named my ex-wife. And that's my joke. That's a joke. I went and I got a relationship. I thought maybe I could fuck this feeling out. And, uh, you know, and uh, I couldn't. And that's a sad, that's a sad circumstance because we didn't make it. We had a seven years later, we got divorced. Uh, if I could tell you anything, leave the newcomers alone. And if you're a newcomer, don't be chasing the old timers because if you're going to chase the old timers, chase old timers for sobriety, <laughs> you know, leave them. Don't be trying to get into a relationship if you're early in recovery because you need something bigger than a female or a male. You need something else. And uh, anyway, um, so that's been about 10 years. You know, I did the steps. I finally did the fourth step in a way that, you know, I said, I finally told somebody that one thing I was never going to tell nobody. I, I mean, like, 
shame ashamed i didn't want to ever i was going to go to the grave and never tell no one this i was willing to do it the first time too but my sponsor the first time the first time i just puked on a piece of paper pretty much is what it was and i just told on myself everything but there was no rhyme or reason or format to it and he says like what am i supposed to do with this you know just like every alcoholic we always go well beyond our measure without any control and uh and so anyway he wanted me to do it the way it says in the big book and i was like whatever and i just moved on and that's why i relapsed i imagine but the second time i did it i did it the way the book said and i went and took it to a sponsor and it was magical actually because the sponsor showed up just enough time for me to do the fifth step and just as magically as he showed up he was gone so uh god is kind of miraculous in that way and i was in afghanistan so there was no way it's coming back on me <laughs> anyway anyway so uh but i didn't have this happy joyous and free but i was experiencing i was experiencing spiritual growth personal growth you know uh I don't know if I've told you, but womanizing was one of the things that I did as an alcoholic. I was, uh, you know, and I was a shopaholic. I was a workaholic. I was, uh, I was in any kind of holic that you could think of. If it made me feel different, it worked. And it, I'm, it works. Everything, all this stuff works. You know, buying, going, taking a trip, not taking a trip, uh, all these things work, but they only work for a little bit. They don't work like the I need the I need something working all the time. Otherwise, I become restless, irritable, and discontent. And uh, so, I don't know if you guys have met my sponsor, Brian L. But uh, he uh, he was one of those guys. I don't know. If, He's like a Tiger Woods. You know, we're all out here playing golf. But when I heard him share, I was like, that guy's not sharing the same thing. I mean, he's sharing the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But, like, he shares the message of Alcoholics Anonymous that's straight from the big book that's not really welcome in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're going to get a lot of watered-down crap that you're going to hear in the rooms and discussion meetings. But when people start sharing the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about God. It talks about higher power. It talks about that this is the central fact and nothing less, that we've had vital spiritual experiences. And this guy was walking it and he was living it. And I could see it in his eyes. And I was like, I got to have what this guy's got because this guy doesn't give a fuck about nobody. Not, I mean, he cares about everybody, but he doesn't give a crap about what anybody thinks about him. He's happy, joyous, and free. And he ain't let no one step on that. No one. And I was like, how do you have that kind of confidence in front with people who are a bunch of egomaniacs with inferiority con complexes, you know? And so I got him to be my sponsor. And after a few years, I mean, first he didn't want to be my sponsor because he, we were friends. And he didn't want to risk our friendship because as a sponsor, you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not here to spare your feelings. I'm here to help you with the disease of alcoholism. And, uh, 
And the disease of alcoholism doesn't, it's not just about drinking. The drinking is but a symptom of our problem, but it has so many ways in which it shows itself in our lives. And we'll be spending the rest of our lives dealing with our alcoholism. I'm recovered from this hopeless state of mind and body. I have a program of Alcoholics Anonymous that helps me with that. But I will always be an alcoholic. I will, I will always suffer from alcoholism, I, not suffer, because I keep it arrested by working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it ain't never going away. It's always trying to get me. And so here I am, 10 years into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think I'm doing all right. I've got the womanizing under wraps. Uh, I'm no longer, uh, I haven't been drinking. I've, I've, have, I've been pretty stable emotionally for the most part for the last, you know, four years. And uh, and I, now I want to quit smoking. And he says to me, uh, well, if after three days of not smoking, you still want a cigarette, that's not the nicotine that's that's a spiritual malady i'm like well what do you mean well after three days nicotine is out of your system there's no longer any nicotine in your system after three days so if you're still fiending for a cigarette it's because you have a spiritual malady you and your relationship with god you're uncomfortable for something other than the nicotine and i was like oh well me and god i think we're pretty tight I didn't make it a day and a half after taking that three-day vow. So like I said, three days. Just go three days. After that, I'll be all right, right? I didn't make it a day and a half before I'm going stark raving mad. You know, I was going to, like, working out. One of the things that I do to, to, to help myself when I'm feeling irritable or uncomfortable is to work out. So I'd go work out. And I'd just done that, and I was still feeling restless. I was still feeling irritable. And so... I thought, you know what? I'm going to call one of my girlfriends. And I'm like, wait a minute. You don't get to go hurting somebody else just because you're uncomfortable. You know, I was. that's what it was for me. I was, it was just a matter of me trying to get this out of my system. And I'm going to go, you know, it didn't matter if it was an agreement. It just mattered that I was hurting people and I had to stop doing that. These people were my friends. And, uh, and then I thought, well, I got to do something. I'm going to have a drink. And so that's where I we really came to a jumping off point because I said I'd rather die than drink. And uh, it was crazy because I was really contemplating killing myself because I just, all I could think about was all the pain and suffering that I've been going through my entire life. It was just all agony, all frustration, all irritable, all restless all uncomfortable nothing was making me nothing nothing but nothing could reach me that time and so i was like i hit my knees and i just said god what the hell is wrong with me why am i why do i want to kill myself for a drag of a stupid cigarette what is wrong with me and i realized that i'd never turned my will in my life over to god never not once had i ever done it not really. I was always playing God. And at that moment, I turned my life over. And I just, and God showed up. He showed up in a way. I mean, Brian, my sponsor, does not have the same faith base that I do. I think he might not have now, 
but at the at the time he did not. He was more of a pantheist. But he had a relationship with God that I did not have. And I was wondering why he could have it and I didn't have it because Jesus is part of my story. And how is it possible that he gets to have the an intimate relationship with God and I don't? And I realized that I, I was arrogant and I was egotistical and I was playing God and I would never let it go. I never, ever actually turned my will and my life over. And that's when I realized that I'm in big trouble. <laughs> and uh, and from that day to this day, I've been walking in a light, in a relationship with my higher power, with God, in a way that is endeavoring to truly be like him. I want to be more like my creator. And, uh, and the steps help me. The steps have a clear way of helping me understand what it looks like to uh, live a life of principles, to be honest, open-minded and willing. And it also helps me when I'm not being that way. It gives me a checks and balances. So uh, I thank you guys so much for letting me share. And all I can say is that uh, get a sponsor and do the steps and be as honest as you possibly can be. And uh, when your ass is on fire, don't stop praying and don't stop coming to meetings because shit's going to get real. And that's what you want. You want. And it's through the fire that we become stronger and we get this new light and new outlook we don't get it by happy joyous we don't get it by just twiddling our thumbs we actually have to go through it we have to have we have to suffer but it's worth it i promise it's worth it thanks for letting me share